0: The Highway Hi-Fi Podcast, where we scour our vinyl collections to bring you great songs by unknown artists and unknown songs by great artists. I'm Joe,
1: and I'm Ryan, and we have decided to make a podcast where we do what we'd be doing normally, which is sit around and talk about music and quiz each other. So, thanks for joining us, and uh, we always like to start out the show with a little bit of music trivia. All right, I'm going to go first today, and I have an audio quiz for you, Joe. I hope you're ready. Okay. Uh, well, we'll see. Um, this one uh, is, is pretty straightforward. Give me the artist, give me the song, and at the end, I want you to give me a theme.
0: Theme, okay. All when right. you say straightforward, generally, often, sometimes it'll be artist title, and then what kind of childhood affliction did they
1: have? Uh, like, that would be a bonus don't. point, because <laughs> they all have it. All okay. right. All right, here we go. We're going to get started with track number one. I hear
2: her voice in the morning hours she calls me The radio reminds me of my home far away I'm Driving down the road Track oh, we were born within an hour of each other Our mother said we could be sister and brother Your name is Deborah Deborah Track four See your little shoes alright when you're only in a battle books. Spend all your money getting short confirmed that you never read. Kiss me, so you're
0: gonna see you. All right, Joe. What you think? You got them? I think I, I feel pretty confident about most of them. Did you? And you said there was a theme too, right? There's a theme. Okay. okay. All right. And Carl, we'll be back to that. I'm hoping you've got something that will, uh, will stump me. Okay. Uh, for my my trivia, the non-audio round, um, I'm going to go through and give you a, a series of clues for. I think it's. I just have four bands for this one. Okay. And I want you to tell me which band I'm talking about for each one of them, and then at the very end, tell me what they have in common. Very good. Okay. Question number one. This recording duo were originally called the Paramours. Um, They adopted their more well-known name in 1952 based on something a fan would shout at them after each of their early shows. They opened for the Beatles on their first tour in 1964, the Beatles' first tour, Um, The same year they opened for the Rolling Stones on a show in California, and they had a number one hit released in 1964. It's their first number one hit, one of the most successful pop songs of all time. One member of the duo died in a hotel room in 2003 because of cocaine, (laughs) (laughs) and it was that same year that they were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Was that before or after he died? Uh, He died before they were inducted, I believe, like by a couple weeks, I believe.
1: Couldn't have hung on.
0: No, couldn't have hung on. Do you want me to read through all four? Why don't you read through all four? Okay, okay.
1: and then we'll come back in the intro. Because there's a theme connecting them,
0: right? There is a theme connecting them. Okay, the second one. Same, this band was founded in 1964. They were Americans who moved to the UK where they ended up having a few top ten albums and singles and one number one single. Um, In 1968, they broke up. They reformed briefly in 74, in which they released three more albums. One of their members uh, went on to have a, Pretty successful solo career, and he's one of the few people who went from—I can't even think of anybody else who's done something like this—was a major pop star and then went into avant-garde music after. Huh. Okay. Okay. Number three, this band was formed in 1997. They released—it's a duo. They released six studio albums. They won three Grammys. They did a lot of cover songs. They're really good at cover songs. They they wrote a ton of their own stuff, too, but they covered uh, songs by Captain Beefheart for Bacharach, Loretta Land, and for one final, super easy to make this, just kind of a slam dunk. One of their songs is pretty anthemic now, and it's played at basically every sporting event in the world. All right. Okay. The last one here. They were mostly known as a duo. They formed in 1984, broke up in 2012, though they did reunite for three shows in, in 2016. In the late 80s, when, you know, when they're still at the beginning, they open for bands like They Might Be Giants, The Bottle Surfers, Henry Rollins. They b- both members claim that Prince is their single biggest influence, though I would never hear that in anything they've done. <laughs> they're more often compared to Frank Zappa because of how different each album is, how they change styles, but they're always kind of weird. They're also really funny, if you think they're really funny. Uh, they're trying to be. They had nine studio albums starting in 1990. Last album was
1: 2007. All right. I think I've got it. Okay. What's number one? Number one, the um the one where the guy shouts at them. Does he shout righteous? Yes. Righteous brothers. Righteous brothers. Righteous. All right. Number number two. Number two is definitely uh the Walker Brothers.
0: It is, yeah. And I don't know, I was I mentioned that the end. have you do you know anybody else who's gone from huge success, like big time pop star to reclusive avant garde recording where even like He's bizarre and doing works that I as, I think are genius or so far above me. I don't. <laughs> but um, no. Other than
1: when Garth Brooks Brooks did that Chris Gaines album. Yeah. Well, I mean that's a different level. Yeah. Yeah. It, it'd be be like a little bit like um Justin Timberlake, like quitting and then just using meat as per- percussion. Yeah. Yeah. Just hiding away
0: in Castle and putting out an album every ten years that is mostly instrumental
1: or him just kind of moaning and. I can't um, think of anybody. Okay. Certainly not who to the extremes. Yeah. The Walker brothers were really successful, right? Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I think he, I think Scott Walker may have even been on a bunch of little uh, teen magazines. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. He yeah. was kind yeah. of a heartthrob.
1: Um, I've got one of the Walker brothers albums, and it looks like it was like included with a teeny magazine. That's what yeah. I mean. Exactly. Yeah. Tiger Beat. All right. Uh, the third one was definitely the White Stripes. Okay. Yep. And the last one. I didn't have it until you said that Prince is their influence, and then I knew exactly who it was, and that is Ween. Very good. Yeah. Okay. All so, right. And all I think right. I know the theme, too. Okay. What is uh, the theme? The theme is that they are all bands that pretend they are siblings. That's
0: it. All yep. Right. Yep. None of them are actually related. Um, <laughs> other than I mean Jack White and Meg White were married, but they pretended to be, or they put the guys up uh, as brother and sister. They got divorced at some point, though, right? Yep. Before
1: yep. they got big or during? Or I what? think while
0: they were getting big. And then now she's she's remarried, I believe. Oh, really? Um,
1: yeah. That brings us to the part of the show where we go in-depth with one topic. And this, this week, it is my turn. So get ready for some turntable talk.
2: Everybody's talking at me. I don't hear a word to say.
1: Only the echoes of my mind. Recently I watched a movie on Netflix called What Happened Miss Simone, which is a bio-documentary by Liz Garbus from 2015 about Nina Simone. Stepping back. I don't think I could talk about like the stature that Nina Simone has in my household with me, (laughs) especially my wife. My wife just adores her and we try to collect a lot of her vinyl. And and, um, it's very common that I come home and pastel blues is playing. You know, it's, she's, she just has a, uh, a level unlike most artists. And I think probably deservingly so because she's better than most. I think coming into this documentary, I already had that, Idea of her and watching the documentary, I think for the most part it was a really good documentary. There's a few things that I'll talk about that I maybe didn't like so much about it. I think it's the most powerful piece was just being able to perform. Like part of me just wanted an hour and a half of different performances by her. And that's not to say her story is not important or interesting, it is. And I think the documentary director did a great job of that. To start, I think there's some point where Ambassador Shabazz, who is Daughter of Malcolm X, who lived right down the street from them. So Nina Simone and Malcolm X's families hung out all the time, apparently. And so uh, Ambassador Shabazz, who's the daughter of Malcolm X, really kind of had the best quote to describe Nina Simone when she said, She was not at odds with the times, the times were at odds with her. And I think she was always ahead of the curve and she was such a visionary in what she did. But the funny thing about it all, and I think the documentary didn't do a good job pointing this out, is I'm not sure she was ever happy with what she was doing. I think at times she was, when she was able to do what she wanted, but there was always other circumstances kind of pushing her. And I'm going to talk a little bit about the book backstory. The film starts with a quote by Maya Angelou that says, Miss Simone, you are idolized, even loved by millions now, but what happened to Miss Simone? It starts with a clip of a show from the late 70s where she goes on stage and she sits at a piano and she looks just uncomfortable she's kind of looking around she she looks out of place she kind of tells a story and she's gonna play some songs and it was clearly an artist who was not comfortable in her own skin at that point i don't know if it's because who she was playing for or what was going on or her own mental health then the film moves back and it shows her in the late 60s she's vibrant and and just amazing that 10-year period, I think, when she, you know, hit the 60s and the civil rights and she was doing what she wanted to do till she's back playing shows, you know, kind of more for rich audiences in Europe and stuff. Like, the difference is just kind of amazing. I thought it was a great way to start the film. So let me go and talk a little bit about her backstory. She was born in 1933. Her, her real name is Eunice Wayman. She was born in Tryon, North Carolina, and she started playing playing piano at churches. And eventually she would play these performances, and a couple ladies, a couple white ladies, saw her at performance and saw her talent. And so they kind of sponsored her or their patrons for her to get classical pianalists. And she took to it, she was amazing. So she played and played and played and played, and she, she built up a reputation. So eventually, as she got older, she went to Juilliard for a bit. And then, after a few months at Juilliard, she applied to the Curtis School of Music. Apparently is the school if you want to be a classical artist, and her goal was always to play classical piano. At her application or her audition, it was apparently incredibly well received, but she was she was rejected. And I think even the Curtis School of Music has acknowledged now, and it was probably very clear. I'm sure it was very clear to everybody. She was just rejected because of race. And so what that forced her to do was to uh, start playing nightclubs in Atlantic City, and she changed her name because she didn't want her mom knowing that she was at these clubs playing blues songs and jazz songs. So she changed her name to Nina Simone. She eventually got a huge hit with I Love You, Pork and she became famous. Very, very famous, real quick. She met and married her husband, uh, a New York City policeman, Andrew Strode, in 61. And he would become her manager, and eventually an incredibly abusive spouse and business partner. It was not not a good thing. It kind of shows her, the film starts with her rise uh, and based on her talent. But even in all this, she still just wanted to play classical music. She never wanted to do jazz and blues vocals. She didn't even want to sing. They made her sing so she could make money at these nightclubs. And uh, at one point in the movie, it talks about how her husband, who was very protective of her and set a lot of things up, got her to play a show at Carnegie Hall. And so she wrote a letter to, uh, I think, her parents. And she said that she loved the audience, she, but she wasn't playing classical music like she wanted to be. So she wrote something along the lines of, yes, I'm in Carnegie Hall, finally, but I'm not playing Bach. Playing Carnegie Hall in front of all these adoring fans, and she's still... So very bittersweet. Yeah. And I think it kind of comes back to that theme of having freedom, both with your civil rights and your very life, and artistic freedom. And that was kind of always her struggle. The movie takes performances, like I said. They had access to her diaries, lots of interviews, interviews with her daughter and her husband, ex-husband. And so the next stage of her career was talking about how she became a voice for the civil rights movement. And she hung around all the major players of the American civil rights movement of the 60s. Malcolm X, I already mentioned. She was with Martin King. She was with Langston Hughes. She was she was just there. And she um, she released a single called Mississippi Goddamn that was in response to several um, murders of mostly black youth in America. Legendarily, it was written in the 10-Minute Fury. And it was one of the most direct challenges ever to be put out, certainly at that time. She, she became very vocal in this, and she became somebody that... People look to. And so she released several more songs to become anthems for the civil rights movement. Backlash Blues, I wish I knew how to be free, to be young, black, and gifted. She was pretty militant about it. She was not, I think there was a, a scene where she says she talks to Dr. Dr. Martin Luther King and she said, I'm not nonviolent. He said, That's okay, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and she followed her desire to speak her mind and say what she felt. She got backlash from it, both from her husband, who says, "I don't want you doing this. I don't, you don't need to be playing these political songs. They're not good for business." And she did. She, it hurt her career. So at this point, he was a
0: cop, and he just retired. He, he retired stopped, manager. So he to be a manager. Yes, yes.
1: Okay. Uh, not at this point. Four. Okay. Like, pretty, yeah, early pretty early on. Okay. At some point, her situation with her husband deteriorated, and she was having personal and emotional, spiritual issues. And she left the US for Barbados and she would move up to move to Liberia for a while and she would give up performing she had mental illness and was on the point of homelessness during the 70s she would move around and she would eventually move back to London and Paris and perform when she could She had a legendarily uh, violent temper there's several times I don't know if they talk about this in the movie or I just know that she just kind of pull guns on people. And like Phil Spector, yeah, yeah. And so she, she just, you know, like I said, she struggled with mental health, bipolar, and the term, the balance between her public success and her personal t- turmoil was always present, you know. And she eventually died in 2003 in France. She, towards the end, they say she got was a little bit more balanced. Was able to perform a little bit. For what I've seen and what people have said, that they were still amazing performances. But that talent and that is just so unique. She could always perform. The passion and craft was always there, even though you can see her roles change. The documentary did a fantastic job, I think. They interviewed the kind of abusive, horrible ex-husband a lot. Gave him a lot of face time, which I'm not sure, because he more or less spent his time on camera putting her down. And so that is a choice that I could see why a documentary person, a documentarian, would do that, but I, I, I just personally didn't agree. And like I said, it helps to give an idea of what she was going through with this jackass. I know. Yeah. I, I guess I do understand that, but like, I would have spent the time more focusing on her. Now her daughter gave great insights, and, and yeah, yeah, and she was. I saw I'm, a lot. Yeah. I remember um, that part of it. You know, the the interviews with Nina. She's just such an interesting, smart, eloquent lady. I, I am not a film critic. I'm a music lover, but I would heartily recommend as a to other music lovers and particularly people who enjoy the Simone, which should be everybody. And the the performances alone are just are worth seeing.
0: Yeah, I need to watch it again. Um, I was mentioning this earlier when we were talking about it that I I watched it after my my second son was born in the middle of the night when he was just weeks old and he was I was going in and out of sleep as he was, so I didn't get to see it all. But I remember a lot of stuff with her daughter, and she was really great. Yeah. Um, I can. Can't comp- going back to the the beginning when you were talking about them hanging out with the uh, with Malcolm X, uh-huh. imagine like a dinner party with the X's and the Simone playing, <laughs> playing charades. It's like sounds like yeah. sounds like spill money.
1: <laughs> anyway, oh, <my> <laughs> anyways, that's my turntable talk. And uh, awesome. again, the doc- documentary is called "What Happened, Miss Simone." Go check it out. Next up, we're gonna start our songs, kind of the meat of the show. Although that was
0: probably gonna be the best part. There, then here's some own stuff. I said, I'm good going to go ahead and open this up with my first track. Uh, This is going to be a fairly unknown song by a well-known artist. It's Bob Dylan, um, and it's a song called Angels Flying Too Close to the Ground, and this is probably the song that's going to get us a cease and desist letter from (laughs) from Columbia. We'll see. We'll see. The song was actually (laughs) written by Willie Nelson, put it on his album Honeysuckle Road in 1981. Bob Dylan covered it for the Infidels album produced by Mark Knopfler in 1983, and it was left off even though it's really good. Not only was that one left off, the songs that made it, they had three or four really good songs. None of them were the best versions though. A lot of the best versions were left off. There was like a rush at the end. Mark Knopfler had to go tour, I think, in Europe, so it wasn't finished, and so Bob Dylan took controls, and that wasn't at that point his strong suit. (laughs) He was just notorious for leaving his best material off of a lot of records, so on that album alone, not only was uh, Angels Flying Too Close to the Ground left off, but Blind Willie Mattel, which is often cited as as maybe the best song he didn't put on an album, it's now on one of the bootleg series and Biograph, I think. An amazing song. There are two versions. There's an acoustic and an electric. They're both great. I think I like the acoustic a little bit more. Uh, But there was also a song. There's a song that made the album called Tight Connection to My Heart. Oh, that was actually on Empire Burlesque, which came out later. But there was a version recorded for Infidels that didn't make it that's even better than Empire Burlesque, which isn't very good. Foot of Pride didn't make it. um, And there's a really good version of actually of Lou Reed doing that live. And 50th anniversary, maybe, of Bob Dylan. I don't remember what the Um, 30th anniversary actually. Some sort of show. Death is Not the End. There was a recording of that, which ended up on Down in the Group. That was a lot of information before I play this song, so let's go ahead and play Angels Flying Too Close to the Ground.
2: Love's the greatest healer to be found So leave me if you need to I will still remember Angel lying too close to the ground
0: Angels flying too close to the ground. I think it's a great song. Um, it was a B-side to I and I, and I think it may have only been a European one. That's the only place. But that's where I found my my copy. You guys
1: want to say where? Yeah, where did you find? It? It's on
0: Columbia. I found it on Discogs a while ago. Um, I had had a copy that I may have smuggled off the internet. Um, but now I have the seven now I have the actual forty-five. It's great. It's one of my favorite songs by him, even though every day it could change. I have probably a hundred favorite Bob Dylan songs. I could go on about him forever. But anyways, on Columbia, just like almost everything, all but one album of Bob Dylans was on Columbia. The only one that wasn't is Planet Waves. I was on Asylum, but now Columbia even owns the rights to that again. So that's my first song, and it is now to you. All right.
1: Just cause I can't get enough Nina Simone this episode, I'm gonna play you a Nina Simone song. This one is from '74, and it's called "Funkier Than a Mosquito's Tweeter."
3: You're nothing but a dirty, dirty old man. You do your thinking with a one-track mind. You keep talking about heaven, and glory, but on your face is a different story. Clean up your rap. Your story's getting dusty. Wash out your mouth, your lies are getting rusty. Can't believe nothing you say. Cause I'm around and I see what you do. You know your monkey eyes and a mosquito sweeter. You got a mouth like a herd of old weavers. Same old game, same old thing. You never change. Jam- Something to tell you I got something to tell you Baby But you ain't hip to, Baby Blowing minds is a thing of the past You blew your chance That's why you never last You wanna be a graduated mother But in reality you're just another brother you could stand a lot of grease in Nothing worse than an educated fool. Talking text is your favorite conversation. But peace and love is a famous generation. What's in your head is really started showing. Your conversation's getting kind of boring. I can't believe nothing you say. because I'm around and I see what you do. You know you, Yeah, then i
1: than a Mosquitoes Tweeter. It's off the album It Is Finished, which was put out by RCA in 1974. That was a live album. This is an album that she did after her main civil rights period had more of the African influence. In fact, she was in Africa and her husband persuaded her to come back and record another album for RCA. And this would be her last for RCA. It was actually written by Tina Turner's sister, Aline Bullock. And it is supposedly about Ike Turner. When you hear <laughs> lines like, you got a mouth like a herd of bow Weevils, there's a little bit of uh, tension there. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought it was, it was kind of great that, you know, Tina's Tina Turner's sister wrote this about Ike, and then Nina Simone decided to record it after kind of getting called back to a life I'm not sure she was happy to get called back into. So I think it has a couple meanings there. The song itself is... It's awesome. It's it's fun. It's got those amazing drums, like some of the best drumming I've ever heard. A lot of play with the dynamics of how soft and how loud she goes. So I don't want to ruin the song by talking about it too much. I think this is one song that just kind of stands on its own as kind of a great, weird relic of Nina Simone. It
0: seems to be also completely different from anything else she did. Yeah. And
1: just another area
0: that she could have explored and would have been just as brilliant.
1: (laughs) <laughs> On that album, there's a few... Like I think she does a version of Kumbaya that's a little bit more. Uh,
0: and Which is she, not a belief
1: she seemed to really no. have. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe by that point. I don't know. But uh, but you're right. It was not typical Nina Simone song. But again, she changed so much over over the years. So you're right. It could have been so much more uh, of that style had she chosen to do that. But I'm glad she did at least one song. And my second song is a total departure from that one this is a song called The Shark and the Cockroach by Ian and Sylvia and I'm going to go ahead and play it before I talk about
4: it. Well, the shark and the cockroach you know neither one's a friend of man they were waiting right behind him when the journey through time began and when the blood begins to fill the old pulse is growing dim. The shark he circles and the cockroach waits. See what love for him. hey, 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 hey. hey, hey. Billy the lion was a cockroach He could go without food for days Oh, you could shine a bright light on him And watch him run ten different ways Look at him run! Everything thing been peaceful Around my house and around my home But I knew that Billy would tell old Frankie If I ever got the urge to roam Walk on board A long gray shark, it dealt in girls and moans. to see that the blood on Frankie for his hands, but they ain't never found the bones. And I don't owe him a nickel, I, I don't owe him a dime. But when I left home on the Friday night, well, it come for the woman of mine. Oh, the long dealt those, who can help themselves? And I'm holding on to mine. So I jumped in my candle like a drove around the corner. Get your battery. Nine. I come right around through the attic And I blam through the kitchen door And the very loud sound of fraggy boy Will roar my phone Hey, 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 hey. Not the shark and the cockroach Neither one's a friend of man They were waiting right behind him When the journey through time began down in this cold little cell I ring my hands a cry Billy did and the woman I love laugh at me when they go by hey, 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 hey. Hey, hey, hey. Ask
1: your mama Alright, that song was called The Shark and the Cockroach It was by Ian and Sylvia on an album called Ian and Sylvia. This was not their first album. This was towards the end of their career in 1971, put out by Columbia Records, who uh, Mr. Dylan recorded for. It was written by Ian Tyson. Ian and Sylvia were a Canadian folk couple. They kind of did the, the whole, we in the whole folk scene. And they're probably most known for their song, Four Strong Winds. And they had a pretty successful career. Um, they were on the Johnny Cash show. And, and they, you know, they were pretty well known as a folk commodity. But interestingly enough, they went to Nashville and started recording some more country stuff. And they formed a bird a band called Great Speckled Bird. We've talked about country funk before on the show, and I think... Some of their songs ended up on those country funk compilations that Lightnin' put put out. But the, if you find the actual Great Speckled Bird LP, it has some collectible value. There wasn't a lot of them done. But so they recorded with this band, Great Speckled Bird, and then they went off and recorded this, which is more or less a country rock record. He and Sylvia. The funny thing about that is it was recorded before Bird's Sweetheart of the Rodeo. They were doing this before before it got really big. We went to an exhibit at the Country Music Hall of Fame where they talked about the start of that rock musician's recording in Nashville. It's called the National Cats. Dylan Cash and the National Cats is the name of the exhibit, which was, was amazing. Joe and I went together. They talk about the Bo Brummels being one of the first bands to do it, but they also talk about Ian and Sylvie. They did it really early. We're talking about Before the Birds, before the birds kind of made it cool, before Dylan. Yeah. Um, the song itself is... is what for, year was that? This That they... That were, they went down
0: and did with the National Cats or that that... Scene, the I Great guess. Speckled. Yeah.
1: I want to say The Great Speckled Bird was in late 66, maybe? Okay. Okay. I and might and be
0: wrong. The And Bob Dylan went down there for Blonde on Blonde. Yeah, but what year was that? 66, yeah. 67, somewhere in there. Yeah. yeah. So
1: similar. Apparently, months before they, they recorded the, the the Nashville um and that that's not this album. This was later. Right. right. But they said a month before Bird Sweetheart of the Rodeo. So was Sweetheart of the Rodeo before or after Blonde well, no. on After. Well, maybe pretty sure. Dylan, uh-huh. I mean, Dylan probably beat him. Dylan beats everybody. But and I'm pretty defensive about it. Yeah. Him, so, sorry. <laughs> no, well, I mean, you kind of you kind of ruined my Thunder here. I'm so you know, sorry. No, no. Fair point from Dylan's, Dylan's favorite son over there. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, it was recorded before the birds. We're we're, we're not sure it was recorded before. before uh, blonde on Blonde
0: was released on May 16, 1966. I have not seen the old Breakthelove Bird yet. But Look I'm sorry, I don't mean to
1: interrupt. You. Nashville,
0: I will, I will, and I'm sorry to be doing this while to interrupt while you're while you're talking. It's See, just really cool. That I get all- Joe in the
1: trivia, Joe gets me in the facts.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that whole Nashville scene was amazing, and I think just that Bob Dylan was often credited for having gone down there, grabbing a bunch of studio guys and recording this album, Blonde on Blonde, and then immediately after that, all of these people, Paul McCartney, um, and like you mentioned the the birds. Leonard Cohen went there recorded with some of the same people I
1: think probably Dylan beat it but Dylan Blonde on Blonde is not a country rock record per se it's better than any <laughs> country rock <laughs> record could be so I think maybe Dylan probably did open up the whole Nashville scene but they you know I don't know why I'm defending them I don't. no know no it's cr- care, uh, but, good stuff but I yeah. think I think like they're saying like a true like country rock record mm-hmm. anyways the song itself I know in a previous episode, we we talked about the song Stagger Lee. I noticed in the lyrics of this song, they talk about Billy the Lion. And so I don't know if this is a Stagger Lee version or Billy the Lion, which is such a popular name. It's
0: almost like you could trace Stagger Lee to just about every song. Yeah. um, But that's a very specific reference, I would think.
1: Yeah. Whatever it is, the song is a, a ton of fun. It is exactly what it is. I hope you enjoyed it. Sorry about the uh, for interrupting you with, with facts. I'm, I'm used to it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> All right, my last song is by someone we've talked about in the past, Lester Bangs. So the song itself is called "Life Is Not Worth Living," but suicide's a waste of time, which is the parenthetical for that. <laughs> and I'm going to go ahead and play that right now.
2: Suicides
0: Okay, that was Lester Bangs with a band called The Delinquents. It was recorded in 1981 in Austin, Texas. Apparently he just went down to Austin and recorded this album. They spent, he and The Delinquents, just some band he found, and to never be heard from again, I think. They recorded this album. It took them about three months to write it, and they recorded it in one 16-hour session, probably fueled by amphetamines, I would assume. That whole album is really good. This song in particular, this is my favorite song on the album, but everything is really good. It did not go over well. Robert Pristow, for example, called Lester Banks' singing adequate at worst, which, Robert Pristow is kind of a jackass. But the album itself, I think, was kind of a precursor for some of the, you were speaking of the the country albums, I think this is a precursor for punk bands doing country sounds. So like the Mekons, when they went and did their kind of, country punk albums from 85 to 87. I think that this really helped do that. And there's no way John Langford wasn't listening to this. Also, I think the Violent Femmes in 1984, when they did Hallowed Ground, whether they knew it or not, I think that this was, this was probably somewhat of an influ- influence on this, as along with the Bible. Uh, but, <laughs> but anyway, that's, that's Lester Banks. Lester Banks and the Delinquents recorded in 1981 on an album called Juke Savages on the Bravos. I have no idea what that means. And I have it on Livewire Records. I'll put a picture of the label up. I've never seen anything else on Livewire Records. That is Lester Bangs. And he is someone who's going to come up a lot. We've already spent a lot of time on him in the past. We're going to spend a A lot lot of time on him in the future. All right. So those are our four songs. Can you go back to your trivia and play some of those songs? Let's
1: do it. All right. While you were talking, I looked up about uh, Ian and Sylvia. They literally, there's an interview where they said... They went down there, and they said, shit, Bob Dylan did it, so we could do that. <laughs> so, uh, I might have. But it was, still, it was still before the birds. There you go. That was...
0: Um, part halfway credit. I didn't
1: dispute I that. I totally going to make your next
0: trailer, make you look so good. You've done it in the past. You always make me look Okay, here we go.
1: This one you should do really good on. Let me go ahead and play the songs one more time for you in the audience. Here we go. Track one. I hear her voice in the morning hour She
2: calls me The radio reminds me of my
4: track five your
2: baby doesn't love you more
4: golden days before the end
0: All right, Joe, what you okay. got for me? So, I think track one is
1: John Lennon's song, Mother. Correct. Um, yeah, he was experimenting with primal screen therapy, and that came out. Yeah, and it's <laughs> might be my favorite of these songs. Oh,
0: it's, uh, uh, it's solo great. songs. Yeah. The second song, I don't know, but my guess would be John Denver. It is John Denver. I don't know the name of the song. The name of the song is Take Me Home, Country Road. Yeah, how do I not know that? Yep. Bad Pilot. The track three... I think, is Pulp with Disco 2000. Absolutely. The Nick Cave cover is really worth hearing. Track four, Elvis Costello, and I think it's Welcome to the Working Week. You got it. Nailed it. Okay. Track five, Roy Orbison in Dreams. Not in Dreams. Ooh. It's over. It's Oh, oh my gosh. Track six, uh, Buddy Holly, I'm Gonna Love You Too. Fantastic. Speaking love, of covers, that, uh, song. Blondie covered that one. Did a great, great, great version of that. Yep. And you said there's a theme? There's a theme. <sighs> I do not know what this theme is at all. Unless I don't, okay. I don't know. Is it related to the band or the song? It's related to the singers. The singers. Did they have? Did their mothers die when they were very
1: young? Nope. Uh, wow. Um, I don't know. Maybe. Maybe that's it then.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's related to the singers. You, um, cracked, the, you cracked the code. One was a,
0: <laughs> Let's see. One was let's a see. terrible pilot. One Go. was assassinated.
1: Thinks another
0: official. Ooh. Superficial. They all wore glasses? Yes.
1: Really? Yeah. Okay, okay. John Lennon, uh, John Denver, Jack Jarvis Cocker, Polk, mm-hmm. the big mm-hmm. Square Things. That was Costello, Buddy Holly, and Roy Orbison. All pretty famous glasses. Okay, guys? yeah, yeah. Now, fun fact, I have seen two of the glasses that these men died in. Do you know which two glasses I I seen? do, because
0: I saw one with you. the John, John Lennon's bloody glasses. I've seen that. In the, in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, um, which everyone should go to. Not kind of,
1: wasn't it like a special exhibit where if you sat by the phone long enough, Yoko
0: would call you? I thought that the, her phone, that, that phone, the Yoko phone, was just there, always. I could be wrong, I haven't been back, and that was 15 years ago. I thought it was just there, and oh, sure she was just, just like dialed. A collection but back? that was a John Lennon exhibit that yes. we saw, so it might have been that. Um, it's also that those glasses appear on her album Season of Glass, yes. and that I love that album. Yeah, we both really like that album. Yeah.
1: Alright, what's the other one that I've seen? Well, Elvis Costello Pope are still alive. They are. So I'm gonna go with Buddy Holly. Buddy Holly, correct. There we go. And um was that in Lubbock or where are those? Yeah, it's in the Buddy Holly, it's called the museum. It might be called something else. Okay. But you can't take pictures of it. But they have like this kind of back room and they're just kind of sitting there in a case. Just
0: yeah, I've been told that before too, and I've always taken pictures. Oh <laughs> not did, a buddy holly, I, but I took sure. pictures that <laughs> I, you know, I put them on and Took a selfie. Do you remember when we were at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? I'm sure you remember this. You got a picture of it. There is a Talking Heads album cover with all these, it looks like little squares. Mm-hmm. Um, they have, what that was, was these little, like three by three or four by four pictures, right? yeah. little Polaroids that were put together for the album cover. It's one of the coolest things ever. They actually have all of those Polaroids on a wall put back together and I think one of them it might have been David Bernal or Chris fan, friends maybe they found these in like a shoebox or something and they had somebody had to put them all back together and I think it took probably took weeks so there's was so, there so many of them record. more songs um, about more songs about yeah. buildings and food yeah okay yeah, I think I think, so. I think I
1: took a picture in front of that I'm you sure did yep. Yep. To, but, yep. yep no we were not supposed to Apparently museums.
0: That's what I do. Yeah, we love music museums in general, and we like taking photos when we're not supposed to.
1: Very good. Well, you did good with that quiz. You got my uh, personal bonus question, which nobody else would know. I mean, I guess you could probably. Yeah, that's like, not too. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't my first guess though. So. I don't know where uh, where John Denver keeps his death glasses. Um, Colorado River. <laughs> <laughs> hey, go out and support. <laughs> go and <on>, support music. <laughs> Buy records. Go to local record stores or buy from the artists themselves. Go see shows. Support people who make great music.
0: And as always, we're going to post pictures of these album covers that we played or 45s, the labels. All of that will be up there. And if you'd like, we would love to have conversations with you. Just comment and we will respond very quickly. We're very lonely. I
1: think we're going to set up an email. You can contact us that way or through Facebook or whatever. But We we would like to hear what you think. Uh, Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.